In 2016, scientists on Earth detected a fast radio burst from a distant region of space with no observable stars. The following transmissions were declassified by the scientific community and given to us to present as The Binary Saga. Log Entry, Ahimavina 93, 2398, Age of Enlightenment. Hey Jason, I know you hate for people to see you in a vulnerable state, but I'm not people. I'm your oldest friend, and we're family. And you can always be yourself with me, whether you're having a moment or you just need a vent. I also know it's hard to acknowledge or even recognize when you need help but I'm glad to hear that you have continued to see your therapist and that it helps. I've seen mine since I was attacked and it's helped me deal with my own trauma, lingering nightmares, Andy's death, and other demons I don't talk about with anyone else. Well, I did with you once, but that message got sent to Bjorn. (laughs) Bjorn also has seen a therapist ever since Yana and his first son's death. I'm glad to know that Aaron has been a good support for your mental health and knows when you need without asking. It sounds like your vacation up at the La Kula R Space Hotel was not only good for reconnecting with Aaron, but it was good for you as well. I enjoyed seeing the fastest Tay ship in the system and the photos you attached. I love the one where Von Law is just barely touching the Velen horizon. It looks so tranquil. I really like to see the Space Hotel for myself one day but I don't know if I'd like to live in a space condominium station like you described. I know for sure that Bjorn would not. There's nothing like that in the Lithian system, as most Mana space stations are moons. I know the military has stations, but nothing for civilians or for leisure. Although it would be one incredible view every morning, right? (laughs) I'm excited to hear what you decide to be when you grow up. Andy and I had that conversation after he found himself without a job. He needed to take a moment, like you to figure out what he really wanted to do. In fact, a close friend of his once told him, the best thing you can do is find that one shining star in your life and follow it. If you do that, it will take you right where you need to be. Sounds like pretty good advice, wouldn't you say? (laughs) I was glad to hear that your mom returned to Vela safely and is doing well. Towards the end of the trip, it seemed like she was finally adjusting to Haimavina's gravity because she would make jokes about her new workout routine and then lift her cane like it was a barbell over her head. (laughs) She cracked me up. Even Javi, who was trained in hygiene environments, said there were days that he felt wiped out. You know, since she's recovering and has trained in our gravity, does she want to come back and watch my kids? (laughs) They continually ask when Auntie Ori is coming back. It's purely a selfish request, because every time the kids stay at my parents' for a weekend, we seem to end up with Bjorn's grandkids. Like, Bjorn's daughters know that we're free. (laughs) That's great news that the VSA is upgrading the trade and transport ships to the new jump drives. It's pretty impressive that everything was approved only a year after the initial CS4 test. House Jorgensen doesn't even release hand terminals on that schedule. No wonder your friend Jonah was cursing at you. (laughs) Are you in line to be a commander of one of those spacecraft? I should remind you that Astra is graduating from the Academy next year, and she would be delighted if you guys could jump over for the ceremony. One of my kids' favorite things to do is watch the flight patterns 
from the observation decks of spacecraft. They like how the air traffic control coordinates the different sized craft and watch the interstellar capable ships taxi out and then disappear as they shoot off into space. Nikki can identify several models now, so he's always calling them out when he sees one of his favorites. I bet they would love to watch the VSA ships materialize around Tanga Station. Speaking of Tanga, the Sam Coma has begun their closed door hearings into the anomaly. Kai was recently questioned, but because everyone is under a gag order, all he could say was that it was rough. Even Grandma Iria said it was the hardest cross-examination she's ever faced, and we know that she's gone up against the Sam Coma many times. The last time I spoke to Jeremy, he said that Hoxa and the Sam Coma have received the CS4 data from the VSA, and they were grateful for the information. However, based on the witness list and questions they asked, he thinks the hearing isn't just about the anomaly. We know something is going on because the trade talks have been paused until the hearings are over, as a number of the delegation are on the witness list. At this point, I would not be surprised if I got summoned. To answer your questions, yes. The Samcoma term limits were created to keep the representatives from staying in power for too long. When this statute was originally agreed upon, Mana were governed by several monarchies. History shows that despite generally benevolent rule, there were a few tyrants. Eventually, the populace united against them and demanded an equal say in government. I read a fascinating biography on Empress Dola Torben, who ruled Trishaun about 4,000 years ago. She had entire families of those who spoke out against her slaughtered and hung from her castle gates as a warning. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> anyway, the change in term limits does not affect our elections, but now someone can get re-elected without limits. Because the Jorgensen family has held power and influence in Lulea for thousands of years, it makes me a hypocrite if I say anything publicly, so I will complain to you. <laughs> Helena has recently made quips about house overreach at the Vonlikbu. Most of the members are titled house members, so we all keep quiet when she brings it up. At the last gathering, Admiral Sven Farrell, who is from Ghanima, like Helena, defended the houses and said that we help our communities more than any politician. Helena rolled her eyes and said, I was elected by my district because they knew I could make a difference. All houses do is collect family dividends. Sven glared at her with his crimson eyes, held up a plane chip worth a thousand credits, and said, I grew up on Alma income, which makes less than this chip per month. It won't even pay rent in most places in the Dale region. But House Relana never let anyone go hungry. That's what houses do, because they understand their responsibility to their communities. All the Samcoma has ever done is tax my checks and cut my benefits. Helena raised her hands in surrender and said, Not all houses are the same. House Tyran and House Lin were terrible. Bjorn, true to form, coughed lightly and said, <clears throat> That's why they no longer exist. We take out our trash. <laughs> She's right. Not all houses are the same. In fact, not all heads of houses are the same. My dad is well-respected in Lulea because he has substantially expanded the foundations and public outreach established by my great-grandmother Yana. Alora Venstrasa, on the other hand, did not have the same reputation. 
She was a business tycoon and grew House Vinstrasse into the most powerful house in the empire. But she was not a philanthropist. The charities she donated to were mostly fancy tax breaks, like museums and concert halls, intended to make the rich feel better about themselves rather than actually help anyone. Her approach is the one thing Bjorn will criticize about his old mentor. In fact, young Veronians used to move off-world for better jobs and send money back home, like Bjorn's mother, Elena. I already told you how Elena started recruiting Veronians from House Tyran after she got fired. After Bjorn took over as head of house, he went even further. Bjorn considers it an obligation to bring employment and talent back to Viron, so he worked with Oli to create grant programs to help returning Veronians start new companies. It wasn't entirely altruistic, and House Laurelin certainly has become more successful, but Bjorn rightly gets a lot of credit for revitalizing Viron's tech industry. Regardless, there is plenty of representatives who agree with Helena's populist ideas, and others who want to stay in power for the sake of power. The problem is, I don't think the term limits will have that much of an effect on the current Samkama, though we may see ripple effects in future elections when some of these people are so embedded in their seats, they just won't retire. <laughs> well, after we returned to Viron earlier this year, we witnessed a massive meteor shower that was incredible to watch from the ground. I attached some photos from a few professional photographers who captured the event. The sky was painted with streaks of color set against the backdrop of the Aurora Borealis. Unfortunately, the meteors also destroyed a number of our satellites and sensors. Our repair teams discovered fragments of the meteors, which were subsequently discovered to consist of rare ore that we've been mining on Haimavina for centuries. Tracing the path of the shower revealed that Viron's moon Avalon had been hit by a large asteroid, and the meteors were only a small part of the huge deposits of the mineral that was easy to extract with the automatic mining equipment. I have to give Oli and his administration credit for having the foresight not to sell Avalon off for mineral rights, because the Veronian government receives a healthy percentage of all the minerals extracted, which goes into a fund for the people of Viron. Personally, I'm hoping that maybe a little bit of that money will be given to the city of Tolina, so they can fix the 17th Street viaduct. <laughs> but the meteor shower was nothing compared to the unexpected adventure Nikki and I had a few weeks ago. Even though the girls are teenagers, we still fly with them to drop them off at the Vinstrasse compound to see Andy's family. I usually stay for a meal to catch up with everyone, and then head back to Viron with Bjorn. He does not join us on the compound, for obvious reasons, but usually schedules meetings or works from the House Laurelin family flagship while it's docked at the Alondra elevator. Since Nikki arrived, Bjorn has used it as an excuse to enjoy a boy's afternoon. He takes Nikki to the Big Children's Interactive Space Museum or walks around the Memorial Park by the Samcoma. But for this particular trip, Bjorn had his quarterly board meeting on Viron, so he couldn't join us. With the House Laurelin spacecraft in the yard for general maintenance and the House Noose Park spacecraft back in the Eluda system, we flew Starnan Air, which is an inter-system commercial carrier. Inter-system spacecraft are smaller than interstellar ships and usually have large seating areas instead of passenger suites. The spacecraft still have amenities like lounge rooms, gyms, 
and a dining hall so passengers can keep themselves occupied. On short flights, passengers rarely sit in their seats, and since flights to Veyron are longer, it's a good time to nap. After a lovely evening at the Venstrasse compound, where Nikki was entertained by Andy's brothers, we took the last flight back to Veyron. Once the safety drill was completed, we headed to one of the game rooms so Nikki could burn off some energy and hopefully sleep for the rest of the flight. <laughs> Once we got settled in our seats, the crew came by and handed Nikki a small bag with a pair of warm socks, a treat, and a spacecraft patch. This is always Nikki's favorite part because he collects patches from every spacecraft he's flown in. We watched one of his favorite vid programs about the first astronauts to arrive on Alondra. Afterwards, we called Bjorn and wished him a good night, and Bjorn kissed the screen and told us that he loved us. We reclined our seats and planned to sleep until we arrived at Avalon Station. Well, that was the plan. A few hours later, we were awakened by the emergency sirens, and the cabin lights went out, and people started screaming. I felt my safety belt against my legs, and I realized that I was floating in my seat. The emergency lights blazed on, and the announcement told us that the spacecraft had experienced an emergency, and that we should immediately don our emergency suits. I looked over to see Nikki, already out of his seat and hanging upside down as he reached under the seats to grab the emergency collars stowed there. He quickly handed me mine, and we both pulled our collars over our heads and hit the activate button. Within seconds, the collars deployed a temporary nano spacesuit that sealed itself around our bodies. I clicked my heels to engage the mag boots, which secured me to the floor. Then I turned to check on Nikki, but he had already engaged his mag boots and was helping the kid in the seat in front of us. He turned to me and said, Mom, this is the first time I've been in a spacesuit. The crew members, already in their spacesuits, rushed around to make sure everyone was situated. They told us that the artificial gravity system had malfunctioned, and that turning it back on without proper calibration could be dangerous. For everyone's safety, the captain ordered the ship's reactors shut down. The crew told us that we were safe, but it would be several hours before a recovery ship would arrive from Alondra. As a precaution, all passengers were going to be transferred to a nearby ship that responded to our distress call. Spacing law, like maritime law, states that spacecraft have a legal and moral obligation to help nearby distressed vessels. The closest spacecraft to us was the Edmund 2-9, a large independent Veronian mining vessel already headed towards Avalon. Unfortunately, this ship was a much older design and could not be hard docked with us. So the crew said that we had to make an emergency exit the old-fashioned way. Once our hangar bay had been depressurized, the crew set up a zip line between both vessels. When it was our turn, a crew member clipped me into the rescue sling and then put Nikki in my lap and then clipped him to me. The rescue sling is basically a makeshift seat with a crawler motor attached to the zip line. The crew member told me just to focus on the open hangar bay and let the other crew catch us. Apparently, it's not uncommon for people to have the urge to grab the line or hold on to their rescuers, which disrupts the rescue process and can result in injury to both parties. With us secured and our arms wrapped around each other, the crew member flipped on the sling's power and we zipped toward the ship. One look at the bottomless, inky black space all around me, 
I could feel my panic rising. And then Nikki pressed his helmet to mine, and I heard him say, Mom, this is so cool. Look, there's home. And we looked at Viron, and we could make out the continent of Yarva by the lights along the sea. I focused on my son's bright smile as he stared at the planet. Nikki was as happy as I've ever seen him, which made me feel better. A huge miner with bright golden eyes like Oli's caught us on the far side. And Nikki looked right at him and said, Permission to come aboard, sir? And the miner laughed out loud as he helped us out of the sling and said, Permission granted, kiddo. <laughs> then the miner told Nikki that they were making fresh cookies for everyone. And I thanked him. And Nikki held my hand as we made our way to the hangar bay's airlock. Once we got out of our emergency suits, we were escorted to the dining hall. The miners were incredibly generous and kept us all in good spirits. Nikki and I helped pass out the freshly made cookies and cups of warm cafe to our fellow passengers. And Nikki quickly became the miners' favorite, asking tons of questions and eventually getting a quick tour of the ship. As we were sitting there, the wall vid screens in the dining hall turned from a snowy landscape to a breaking news story. The Chiron read, Emergency cripples Starnon Air Flight 237 to Avalon. The news anchors gave a rough summary of our situation and mentioned that we were being rescued even as we spoke. We applauded the miners, who blushed and smiled. And then my official House Jorgensen picture was displayed on the screen, and the news anchor mentioned that Nikki and I were among the passengers. I reached for my hand terminal to call Bjorn, but remembered that we had to leave our belongings on board the ship. The miners passed around their own hand terminals so we could call our loved ones to tell them that we were okay. Coincidentally, Sonnet told us later that Bjorn had just begun his board meeting when one of the executive systems pulled him out and said that she needed to speak to him immediately. As they left the conference room and headed towards his office, Bjorn noticed that several employees glued to the vid screens. It didn't register with him what happened until my picture appeared and Bjorn said that he felt his knees give out beneath him and collapse the ground. Bjorn woke up in a panic on the sofa in his office, asking what happened to us, and Sonnet tried to reassure him that everyone was okay. The medic said that he had just fainted from shock, and Sonnet was still hugging her brother when my call came in on his desk. Bjorn could barely get words out, because he was happily flooding as he pressed his hand to the screen. I fought back my own tears at seeing him. Nikki, clearly oblivious, told him that we were okay and excitedly replayed our entire experience in rapid detail. I told Bjorn that I loved him and I would be home for breakfast, and I saw him crack a smile through tears at our old joke. Sonnet took over the call and told us that they were glad that we were safe and they would meet us up on Avalon. After I ended our call, the heaviness of what we had just experienced hit me all at once. A lot of the other passengers were experiencing the same swirl of emotions that I was. I looked over at Nikki, who was easily the calmest person on board, and he smiled at me as he watched the other passengers. Nikki noticed a girl around his age who was quietly crying against her dad. Nikki went over and sat next to her and handed her a cookie. And then he talked about his favorite school subjects, music, and nothing in particular. 
the girl stopped crying and turned to talk to him. Nikki taught her how to play this slap hand game that his big sisters liked to play to break ties. When she won and laughed, his face brightened, and I could tell that he was happy that he made her smile. And then I heard him say, See? You don't have to be sad. We're okay. And you just met a new friend. I had to smile, because he really is his father's son. <laughs> we landed a couple hours later on Avalon Station, and Bjorn was waiting with the other families outside the arrivals gate. Bjorn almost started to flood again when he hugged us, and even I fought back tears. We were politely interrupted by the captain and crew of the Edmund 29. The captain handed Nikki their ship's patch and told him that he was welcome to crew with them whenever he wanted. And then each miner clasped his little forearm with theirs and slapped their hands with his. Bjorn thanked them all for rescuing his family and made a fist and held it to his chest in an old Yothian gesture for respect. The captain nodded and returned the gesture and said, Anything for your family because I know you would have done the same for mine. And one by one, each of them returned the gesture as they left us and disappeared into the crowded station. By the time we returned to the house, the rest of our family was already there. Bjorn sat with his arms around me while we watched Nikki excitedly retell our experience to everyone with great dramatic effect. The girls called in a panic and I told them that we were fine. Nikki talked with them for a little while and I could hear him refining the details of our adventure to make it sound better. <laughs> Raythea eventually jumped on the screen and went into full mom mode and asked how I was feeling. She offered to bring the girls back to Viron, and I thanked her, but I told her that the girls were looking forward to their vacation with them, and the girls were very sweet and still checked in on us every day while they were gone. I also sent my parents a fleet comms message to let them know that we were okay just in case the news reached Haimovina before I had a chance to talk with them. Oddly enough, our incident barely made a blip on the Haimovina airways and didn't even make the network. Thank Linnea for small favors or my family would have been mobbed. My parents arrived within a week anyway to check on us, which was nice. After everyone left that evening, the three of us got into our lounge clothes, curled up together on our bed, and watched vids. We needed a little alone time together. The adrenaline of the day eventually caught up to all of us, and we were soon fast asleep. The next morning, I remember opening my eyes to Alithia's bright rays coming through the window, and for a minute, I thought I had dreamed the whole experience. And then I noticed that Nikki was still asleep between us. I was so proud of how brave and calm he was, and I looked over at Bjorn, who had opened his eyes, and I reached over and I touched his face, and he kissed my palm like he usually does. And then he placed my hand on his bare chest. And we didn't need the stones or words, because we knew what we were saying in our hearts. We were still smiling at each other when Nikki shifted, opened his eyes, and said, Can we go down to the Peterson Bakery for Corva Pusti? Bjorn said, It depends on whether you can escape. The tickle monster! And Bjorn made his face and held his fingers like claws and started to tickle Nikki, who instantly started laughing. And then I told Nikki that the tickle monster was very ticklish too, and we attacked Bjorn. 
Some days later, the captain of the Edmund 2-9 messaged us and asked us if we knew anything about the loan on his spacecraft being paid off by an anonymous donor. We told him that we had no idea what he was talking about. And he paused for a moment, smiled, and said, Okay, well, if you do hear anything, let us know. We would like to thank them for their generosity. I have flown in a few spacecraft since, and I will admit that I had to take a minute to relax before finding my seat. I always know where my emergency collar is stowed. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it mostly reminded me that in a crisis, people find a way to look after each other, and there are good people out there. But just for the record, I never want to zipline to another spacecraft again. <laughs> Love, CJ, age 64. Log entry, Vela 94. Vela Rotat 2718, cycle 7 of the 8th Annual. Hey there, CJ. I'm really glad to hear that after your last ordeal, you and Nikki are all right. The flight you were on sounded like a harrowing one. I have to assume that failures like that are not commonplace on vessels over in the Alithian system. I would hope that they have a fairly high standard of maintenance. It would appear that they have extremely high standards when it comes to emergency procedures, though. Both your flight crew and the crew on the mining craft sound like they followed all of their procedures perfectly. Not that I'm assigning a grade or anything. When I was in the TPP, we would observe and rate some of the drills that the VSA crew would do to keep up on procedures. You can let those crew members involved in the whole event know that I give them the VSA stamp of approval when it comes to your rescue and handling of the emergency. Your experience with the tether and zipline sounds like a mix of exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. All of our vessels have universal docking ports designed to interlock with stations and other craft. On the rare occasion that an emergency would occur, all of our crew are trained for external space jumps. Imagine going across the zip line, except that there's no line. We would have to mentally calculate the amount of force and angles required to reach the other craft and then jump. Like I said, this is only if an emergency occurs, so most of us have not had to do this in a real situation. Not even me. Our training involves being attached to a line on the originating vessel, so that if we get it wrong, we can be brought back. In all of my time at the VSA, I have only heard of this procedure needing to be done once. One of the transports to Fenora experienced a power surge for their rotational thrusters, and wouldn't be able to dock with any station or vessel due to the constant spin. A repair craft was dispatched and the crew had to jump to the transport to begin fixing the issue. I met one of those repair folks one time at a bar and she told me that it was one of the hardest things she had ever done. When you're training, you have that safety line. Due to the rotation of the target, they couldn't risk the line causing a tangle and pulling both vessels together catastrophically. She was the first to make the jump, and all she saw was the craft approaching, spinning. She had to grab hold and try not to bounce off. The look on her face told me that she still has bad memories about the event. 
All this is to say that you should be glad that those procedures are in place and worked great. Because of them, you and Nikki made it home safely, and the mining vessel was well-deserved of their anonymous donation. I couldn't imagine you would want to perform any sort of space jump. Given how you feel about going up and down a space elevator, I'm pretty sure that if Nikki weren't there with you, you might not have even gotten on that zipline. I'm really proud of Nikki for maintaining a level head during the whole ordeal. That usually only comes with rotets of training and studying of all of the above-mentioned procedures. I know many test pilots who have sunk when presented with the same sort of situation. You have a special little kid there. Now that she's back home and readjusted to life on Vela, Mom has been working with the ambassador's office inquiring about the pause in trade talks and this closed-door investigation that the Samcoma is doing. That session has the council concerned that Velen-Hymovenin relations could become more strained given the attitude of the traditionalists on Ganima. When Mom was on the council, she kept the peace between the various points of view regarding Hymovina. Now that she isn't there to mediate, the attitude is shifting. Those who are wary of the Alithian influence on Hymovina are growing in number, and people are worried that the more the Empire integrates Hymovina, the less likely it is that our friendly conversations would continue. <clears throat> oh, I should mention that after she got home, Mom treated us to a special dish of plockfisker. She had to do a lot of research to find a species of fish that was raised in the same conditions as one found there. She opted for a hapu, which is found way up north. She prepared the whole dish using spices she had picked up during her visit. I have to say that it tasted so much better than all of the previous attempts at meals made to simulate Hymovenin food. You remember that club that Javi and I went to that claimed to be a true mana experience? They had the same dish on the menu, and I should really go and demand my money back. I probably won't because the food was still pretty good, but seriously, this was leagues better. Javi has mostly recovered from his trip out to Haimovina as well. After he got back, the VSA was not that pleased that he was pulled into the ambassador's mission, since it meant that they had to scramble to find someone else to stand in for him at Tanga. It turns out he was actually scheduled to do some serious work out along the border, and there wasn't an easy replacement for him. When he got back to Tanga afterwards, his substitute for those missions got to take over on Mom's craft for the trip home and Javi had to stay out on the border for an additional six annuls to make up for his absence. The only thing that saved him from further punishment was the glowing review that he received for his performance on the mission. It didn't even come from my mom. It was one of her aides that said that he stepped up and worked hard to help out in every way possible. When Javi got home, we sat and talked about his time there. He filled me in on everything he got to do, both in an official capacity and not. I told him about the feelings I was having towards his trip. My therapist said it would be good to confront those feelings with those involved. He listened intently, more than I've ever seen him do before, and told me that he understood what I was going through. He said he always felt like he was in my shadow when it came to accomplishments here at home, and that was why he would always joke around with me about things like being the best pilot. Javi had never expected that this trip would even occur, and he didn't know what to do. 
he asked himself, what would Jason do in this situation? And that's what spurred him to go with mom to Haimavina. At the end of the conversation, we turned to some of the adventures he had there, and we both ended up drinking a few more citrus than we should have. I'm still jealous of what he got to do, but he's right. I would have done the same thing if our roles were reversed. I'm glad that he got the chance to hang out with you and your school. He did mention that he was excited to visit with Mari and Kai as well as meet their new baby, and they managed to have a good visit. I know it sounds like we're moving fast in the assembly of the new fleet vessels. Admittedly, the acceleration was based on the results of the initial tests of the CS4 and the decoy slash repeaters that were placed around the system. The signal interruptions showed no effect on the new systems. Because of this, the VSA pushed up the schedule of manufacturing. This has really been in the works for ROTADs now. It's just that everyone was really waiting on that final test to be completed. All of the various craft were already being built or retrofitted. Some were in for their regular repair cycles. The jump drive was the one variable that was left in the waves. If the test was a success, the drive would be integrated. If it failed, those vessels would fall back on fusion and magsail systems. When the VSA gave the all clear for the test, it was only a matter of ramping up production of the new drives. And most of those parts were already in production. You know, Nikki should seriously start thinking about pilot training there. Visual recognition is a regular part of our training. Almost all of the crew is trained to be able to recognize any type of vessel on either sight or instrument signature. We run through simulations of many of our own craft and even some of the Alithian and Haxa vessels. Well, the ones we have encountered, or seen through public means. Being able to pick up on that sort of thing at his age is a great skill. You should talk to Urko about getting some of those simulators for your home. I'm sure that Nikki would love to spend time learning how to fly in them. It's interesting that you bring up mining rights on the moon of Viron. I don't know that any Velen would even think about doing any sort of mining on Chona or Chone. They are considered precious planetary landmarks, especially now after the discovery of the split of Cho. It's a primary site for scientific research, and certain areas of each moon are established for bases and operations, but the idea of taking natural resources away from them is unthinkable. The idea is that Cho has already given us so much that to take more would be selfish. For us, Mining operations are relegated to Feynora, the asteroid field that exists between Vela and Tora, and then there are operations at Tekor Havala. Many of the mining vessels are now also in retrofit for the new jump drive, and the first of them has jumped to TKH. This will aid in production since the trip before took almost a half a rotat pushing the magsail. Now they can be there in a few cycles. Several annuals ago, I talked with one of the commanders of the mining fleet, and he said that, while they are all excited for the upgrades, he will miss the downtime on flights. He has grown used to the time dilation in using the magsail. The flight time to get to TKH allowed him to explore other hobbies and get to know his crew better. On the other web, he will have the chance to be at home more. On the subject of being home more, 
How are things going back on Hymavina? It would seem that every transmission you send involves something going on with Viron or Alandra or even Ganima. I hardly ever hear of your time on Hymavina. In a way, I kind of miss hearing about trips to the Twin Sisters or even the clubbing that you would go on with Mari in Hafnina. Now that the Alithian system has opened up, it would seem that everyone is so focused on it and I don't hear about Hymavina anymore. You know, it's funny that you mentioned my position on one of the new vessels. It turns out I was indeed offered a position to command the second model built off the CS4 design. The CS line of spacecraft has officially been redesignated as the VSF, or Velen Space Fleet, and the CS4 was redesignated to VSF-1, Jalen. Joru will remain in charge and has been tasked to start exploring nearby star systems. Her first assignment is the nearest system, Unabibi, which is only four light rotats away. The plan for upcoming missions is to jump into a neighboring system, perform scans on the bodies in that system, and then jump back. If things go well, then extended missions would follow. In a previous transmission, I had mentioned that the CS... Uh, I mean the VSF vessels. Hey, they were still the CS when I made that transmission. This is going to be confusing for a while. Well, they were being built to be exploration craft with accommodations for an enormous crew. And their schools. Soma and Pei have joined Joru, and they set out for Unabibi within the next few annuals. We expect that they will only be gone for around a rotat. With the way the jump drive works, any transmissions that we send out towards them, and even any they send back, wouldn't arrive until they had already returned. I know that this is all old news for someone like you, who flies between systems on a regular basis, but the idea still boggles me. With Joru being gone, the VSA has asked me to take command of the VSF-2, the Huwata, which has been tasked with furthering the investigation of the, now former, anomaly. The Huwata will be one of three new jump vessels added to those already involved in the investigation around Key, and I will be in charge of all of them. I will still just be called Commander, but now it's Fleet Commander. The VSA felt a new jump-capable fleet would be able to gather more information and cover a wider area around Key. All of the signals that we have been able to recover from Aaron's new SI algorithm confirm that the area that we're looking for is roughly 20 light subtides away from Key, which puts the point of origin just outside our system. The search area has been narrowed down to a sphere of about two light quarter tides in diameter. It's in that weird area that exists between our two systems. Not quite close enough to be in a Luda space, and far enough out that it's just beyond Von La. It also appears to be in a constant geostationary orbit on the opposite side of Key, keeping the small planetoid between that sphere and Von La. It's still a huge area to cover, but we finally have an idea of where to look. Without Aaron's work on the SI and poring over all of the archived signals, 
we wouldn't have been able to even find this. It would appear that we have actually been seeing influences of the anomaly ever since the first signals from space were detected on Vela. There just hadn't been anything as huge as what we've seen with the transit interruptions. But there were little things that all pointed back towards key. For example, there were queries on information systems and an attempt at alterations of records. They were all things that would normally be overlooked or, if discovered, attributed to someone local. It was only after Aaron had so many examples of the code that was used that she could create a search that identified all of these attempts. Because of this, Aaron has become increasingly interested in the investigation. Since this new assignment is considered to be outside of our system, I have been authorized to ask my school to come with me. It would be just like the assignment that Joru is going on, in a way. We will be traversing out past key and performing our investigations by scanning the spherical area that was identified. As a fleet commander, I will be in charge of not just my own crew, but everyone on all three of the VSF vessels, and an additional five research craft that are already in the area. They are going to be really surprised when the Huata jumps in. They are so far away from the nearest communications hub that it still takes a few annuals for messages to get to them. Hopefully it won't be too awkward for Navi as she is currently in charge of the investigation out there. At least that part won't change. I may be in charge of the fleet of craft involved, but the investigation is all hers. It's crazy to think that I have known Navi for so long. Going from a geological expert to an investigation manager is quite a swim. It was only because of the research methods she developed while uncovering the split of Cho that she was asked to step up to a command position in the investigation. The few times that I have heard from her recently, she said she really misses sitting in a lab looking at rocks. As you can imagine, this is a huge decision for Aaron, myself, and even Nasu. Aaron has already been invited to fill the SI analyst position on the Huata, so she wouldn't be just on board as a school member. And they have worked out instruction and classes for any children brought on board. Some of it has even been taken over by the SI, but Aaron said she would rather instruct Nasu herself than have the SI do it. When I asked Aaron what the difference would be since she was the one who designed the SI, she just glared at me. They are adding the finishing touches on the Huata's mag floors now, and it should be ready soon. That's the new artificial gravity flooring I had mentioned before. Knowing how they built the CS4 and what it looked like on the inside, I can't wait to get aboard the VSF-2. Compared to all the previous vessels I've been on, this new one is going to be the start of an incredible adventure. If everything works out, we will be departing for key in the next five annuals. This should give Aaron enough time to evaluate all of the variables and adjust to a potential new parameter. Her words, not mine. May the waves guide us. Jason, 64. Log entry, Haimavina 94, 2399, Age of Enlightenment. Hey, Fleet Commander Jason Sayori. 
Congratulations on your promotion. Achieving your dreams and being recognized for all your hard work has got to feel really great. It seems only yesterday you were finishing up your training with the TPP, and now you're a fleet commander. Well done, my friend. I'm excited to hear about your journey beyond key and what might be discovered there. It sounds like the VSA assigned the best of the best with you, Navi, Aaron, and her remarkable SI program to figure out the mystery. Plus, let's not forget little Nasu. With her strong aptitude for programming, maybe she can earn her keep on the ship. <laughs> How is life on the Huata with your school? That's got to be nice to have them there with you. A true adventure together. Of course, I hope you take me on a tour, especially your living quarters. Did Nasu want to take every toy she owns? <laughs> When my girls were little, I would have to limit the number of plushies they were allowed to pack. But Bjorn, always the softy, would allow them to stow an extra toy in his bags. Obviously, I want to hear all the stories from your trip. How did Nasu like taking classes aboard the spacecraft? Did she meet a bunch of new friends? I'm very interested to hear how it was with all the crew and their schools. Did any crazy drama happen on board? On my four-day flights back and forth to the Elithian system, I'm usually herding children and tending to Bjorn, so I don't get to hear any of the ship's drama. So I'm hoping for some stories from you. Have you heard from Joru about her venture to Una Bibi? Did she discover a new planet that Velens can colonize? And if so, did she name the planet Yorostad? Actually, that name sounds really cool. I recently learned that Alondra was named for the astronomer who discovered it, Alondra Sagan. According to the history books, Alondra was a new hire at Hoxha and got stuck working the night shift on the St. Linnea holiday. As she was pouring herself another cafe in hopes of staying awake, she spilled her cup all over her keyboard. While cleaning the mess, she inadvertently changed the coordinates of the scan for potential viable systems. The wall screen zoomed to another part of the universe, stopped, and her computer said, Match confirmed. Apparently, she stood in silence and then ran it again to make sure it wasn't a false positive. It came back confirmed. <laughs> so typical Mana, right? We discover everything by accident. <laughs> well, as predicted, I received a summons from the Samcoma Von Law Anomaly Committee. It's not exactly where I wanted to spend an afternoon. As I waited to be called into the session with Leifer Lana and Daya Yaolin, we speculated on what they could possibly ask three advocates about the anomaly. And then my ex-boyfriend Hark exited the chamber with his advocate. He glanced at me and said, Remember Professor Pickerel's class? Yeah, it's like that. And I quietly chuckled, because Hark and I used to say that to each other when something was a waste of time. Because of the court order, I can't disclose anything that was asked or what I said, but I can tell you, Hark was not wrong, and I will never get that afternoon back. Concerningly, the traditionalists are the least of the real drama at the moment. There are a few extremist groups who are making noise as of late. Much of the rhetoric is about practices of house corporations that no longer exist. But to these groups, one house is the same as another. Judging by their statements, they're not tied to any political party and claim that all parties are corrupted by the houses. They seem to enjoy holding protests in front of house corporations around Ghanima. Recently, in Ghanima's capital, New Hartstead, 
House Erickson hosted a St. Linnea event for their employees that attracted a group of protesters who shouted at people as they left. As Cy and Karina Erickson was leaving with her husband and one of their granddaughters, a small group of protesters attacked them. The building's security cameras recorded the entire incident, and it was frightening to watch because it was complete chaos. Someone grabbed Karina by her hair and pulled her to the ground. The attacker started to claw at her clothes, but she headbutted him and got beneath another and kicked him right between the legs. Her husband fought off a couple protesters trying to protect their granddaughter, but another attacker grabbed her. Karina lunged at the man and slammed him to the ground in one motion. Karina looked almost feral, her dress half-torn, as she straddled the attacker and punched him repeatedly. The sound of approaching sirens dispersed the protesters. It took her entire security team to pull her off the bloody and unconscious attacker. I can't blame her. If someone touched anyone in my family... (sighs) Anyway... At his trial, the attacker pleaded guilty, but insisted that he got caught up in the moment and would never harm a child. Most of the protesters seen in the vids were arrested. A common theme in their statements is that they want house corporations off of Ghanima. Ghanima is home to three houses, Gibson, Erickson, and Rolana. Leif Rolana told me that his mom, Salusa, does not want to leave Ghanima because she feels like she would be abandoning the people who depend on them for food and support. The House rules and rights clearly state that House status confers no sovereign grant from the populace, but instead requires the House to give back in service. We all adhere to this. Well, the good houses do. House Rolana has a small presence on Haimavina to manage their ancient lands. However, Leif said if things get worse they will relocate the entire house and any employee who wants to move to Haimavina because farms can be re-sown, but lives can't. According to the kids' Lithian history textbooks, Ghanama's past has always been turbulent. It was a second colony, and from what it sounds like, the early settlers were very territorial. In fact, the Great Lithian War was over Ghanama's independence, and they really never got over the loss, despite the Samcoma eventually granting each planet autonomy under the Empire. Alondra and Yasna have seen protests bleed over from Ghanama, but Viron and Haimavina haven't been plagued with the house backlash. That said, we reinstated tighter personal security protocols as a precaution. We explained to the kids what happened to me, Mari, and Andy. It was a difficult conversation for me, but... They are taking their security seriously. In more fun news, Nikki got his first experience in a captain's seat on our way back to Haimavina. We flew back aboard the House Laurelin family starship, and the captain asked Nikki if he wanted to take the helm as we prepared to drop into Interstellar. Nikki sat in the seat with the captain standing behind him, clicked the headset mic, and said, Alondra Flight Control, this is Laura Lynn 629, requesting clearance for interstellar departure. Nikki took it very seriously. Alondra Control responded with, Laura Lynn 629, you're cleared for drop. Have a good ride, kid. To which Nikki said, Copy that, Control. Making the drop. Laura Lynn 629, out. After a nod from the captain, Nikki said to the crew, Go for drop on my mark. Three... Two, one, drop. And the navigator dropped us into interstellar, and everyone applauded. The captain tousled his hair, 
and she told him that he did a great job. The trip only got better for Nikki when on the third night, Erko revealed a surprise for all of the kids on board. He gathered them outside of the ship's gym, which had been cleared of equipment and was totally open. Erko and his kids, Hannah and Kurt, had placed a bunch of huge foam cubes with glowing targets at the center of the room. Each kid got a nano collar, similar to the rescue collars, that turned into a brightly colored vest and neck protector. They split the kids into teams and gave everyone a football-sized ball. Erko then explained a game called Space Tag. The rules for Space Tag are simple. Each team has 15 minutes to get the most hits on the targets. Some of the kids clearly thought it would be easy, and then a crew member turned off the gravity in the gym, and the foam cubes began to float around. One by one, Erko launched each kid into the zero-gravity gym. Erko and his kids launched themselves into the gym and helped the kids get orientated to the new environment. Let's just say there was more giggling than actually playing space tag. The kids had so much fun pushing themselves off the walls and floating around. The twins convinced Bjorn and I to try it out. The emergency last year was the only other time I've been weightless, and I know this is second nature for you, but for me, it was such the oddest feeling. And to answer your question, yes, I vomited. Twice. (laughs) Erko told us that during basic training, fleet members train in zero gravity like this, but the other teams shoot at each other with laser guns. He didn't like the idea of kids shooting at each other, which explains the targets. This actually is a good segue about why my hair looks different than usual. (laughs) It all started a few months ago when the Vinstrasses came out for Astra's graduation, which I will return to in a minute. Kai and the Vinstrasser brothers are notorious pranksters, something I do not find at all amusing, which apparently makes me a prime target. The guys often hide around the estate and shoot paper confetti poppers at each other. Unlike Erko, they have no problem recruiting and arming the kids. Leaving our apartment almost guaranteed I would be covered with little bits of colored paper, and the kids would run off laughing. After the Vinstrasses returned to Alondra, the kids escalated to more problematic projectiles, like shaving cream, foam darts, colored dye and glitter. It was not amusing to begin my annual shareholders meeting with partially blue-stained hair. Good morning, everyone. My seven-year-old has discovered practical jokes. (laughs) At least it broke the ice and everyone laughed. The most recent glitter incident will hopefully be the last, because Nikki got into serious trouble. The glitter canisters the kids have been using are basically small metal projectiles that can be really dangerous if used too close to someone. In this instance, Nikki didn't realize Bjorn was right behind me, and the canister hit him in the face. Bjorn covered his nose in shock, but blood was already streaming out. Nikki realized what he had done, panicked, and ran off. After helping Bjorn get the bleeding stop, I went looking for Nikki, and I found him sobbing in the pool house. We don't yell at our kids, but I sure wanted to. I explained to Nikki that his actions had gone too far and could not go unpunished. He was deprived of his flight simulator game and playdates until we returned to Viron. To let you know how long it's been, we don't return to Viron for a few more weeks. 
I also told him he had to clean up all of the messes around the estate caused by these pranks and apologize to everyone. He tearfully apologized to me. I felt a little bad, because he is seven, and he was only trying to have fun. Kids do stupid things all of the time, but he needed to learn that his actions have consequences. As Nikki and I walked back to the apartment, we heard Bjorn cry in pain. And then we heard my dad call him a wimp. <laughs> Apparently, my dad had to reset Bjorn's broken nose. When we walked in, Bjorn was holding an ice pack to his nose and grumbling at my dad, who was cleaning up. All of this made Nikki feel worse, and he hid behind me. Bjorn asked Nikki to come sit with him, while Nikki curled up and apologized to Bjorn. I went looking for the real mastermind in all of this. Kai. I found Kai in the kitchen, eating from a leftover box and holding a blanket. I almost kicked the skit out of him right there. But he told me that Mari was making him sleep in another room for the evening. Apparently his son shot his baby sister in the face with confetti, and Mari had already yelled at him. So I figured we were square. The following day, Bjorn had his nose imaged to make sure there wasn't anything else injured, and the orthopedic surgeon said that my dad did a great job at resetting the brake, and it would take a few weeks to heal. No surgery necessary. As far as my hair, it took almost six hours for the stylist to brush out the tightly knotted braids. And then she removed the glitter and blue color. Oof, my scalp was tender and sore from all of that. As you can see, my hair is still long, just loose. Looking in the mirror for the first time, I felt like part of my Yothian identity was gone. I've had my hair styled in fleta since I was 10, like most of the women in my family. Grandma Iria was criticized for wearing fleta when she worked as an anchor for JCN, but it's an ancient Yothian tradition that traces back to Empress Hera. It's hard to explain to someone who doesn't have hair, but it's our custom and it's important to us. After I left the salon, I met Bjorn for dinner and I found him at the back of the restaurant in a secluded booth. He was holding the menu at arm's length because he couldn't wear his reading glasses. He still had pretty nasty bruising around his eyes. I sat down next to him and said, Mind if I join you, tough guy? My date never showed. Bjorn turned towards me, and his handsome face brightened despite the painful bruising. He moved my loose hair behind one of my ears and said, What a jerk. I'm happy to keep you company. What are you doing for the rest of our lives? <laughs> Bjorn always makes me feel better. He told me that I looked beautiful, and I would still be beautiful even if I had to shave my head. I told him that was good, because there were a few spots around my head where my hair had to be trimmed out. <laughs> See? Look at this spot. <laughs> my hair still has to grow out a few more weeks before my stylist can return the fleta. Well, back to our big family news. Astra graduated from the academy. She finished at the top of her class and won an excellence award for her capstone thesis on economic growth in developing planets. We are all extremely proud of her. Finishing at the head of her class meant that Astra got to speak, and her remarks were funny and touching. And what she said at the end really moved me. I actually have a copy of it right here. Recently, someone asked me if I was sad that my dad wasn't here to see me graduate. And I'd like to take a moment and tell you all about my wonderful dad. He is the man who dressed as a farhoon and made up bedtime stories for my sisters and I. And he let us braid his hair, 
and broke his wrist teaching us how to snowboard, and has always loved us like his own daughters. And while I know that my father, Anduin, watches over me and is proud of me, the man I call Dad is sitting next to my mom. My parents taught me that family is not only about blood, but the love we share with one another. As we all leave the Academy for new adventures, remember that we are family, and we hold places in each other's hearts. Oh, my sweet girl. Well, after the ceremony, Raythea approached Bjorn. They stared at each other for a moment, and finally Raythea said, Thank you for being their dad. And Bjorn gave a sad smile and said, They were impossible shoes to fill, but I did my best. Raythea gave him a nod, turned away, and joined Reese, who was talking with the twins. I swear I thought the permafrost had melted beneath the twin sisters, because I couldn't believe that just happened. <laughs> Granted, they haven't spoken since, but hey, it was progress. <laughs> Once the graduation event concluded, we all returned to my parents' house for her graduation party. We made sure to embarrass her, and she got lots of gifts. Asa received full academic scholarships to every university she applied to but she decided on attending the same university as all the other Jorgensens before her, Stromsheim Polytech, and she will live here at the estate. And I'm happy to have my first baby back home. I miss having her around. After the family party, Astra left to meet her friends for an all-night bash at a local club. I was feeling a little sad because it was the first big milestone that Andy wasn't around to see. Even though I didn't say anything, Bjorn knew I was having a tough time that day. He's been there. After his daughter's weddings and the birth of his grandkids, he had tough nights too. We both truly love each other, and that will not change, but we both mourn the milestones our late spouses have missed. Maybe a week later, Astra and I were sitting in the girls' sitting room at the estate, and she had her head on my lap like Andy used to, and she asked me when I knew I was in love. When I played with her fleta, and I tried to be cool while I asked her who she was in love with. Not surprisingly, she said it was her best friend Galen. I listened while my eldest daughter told me that Galen had a lot of admirers at the academy, and that he probably would never notice a nerdy girl like her as more than just a friend. And I asked her why she had not told him how she felt. And there was so much Andy in her awkward smile, and she admitted that she didn't want to ruin their friendship. And I told her that was silly, because if they were truly friends, being honest wouldn't ruin anything. And I asked her what her dad would say, and she smiled and repeated one of Bjorn's favorite sayings, You regret the chances you never take. <laughs> the next day, Astra and Galen met for a fika at their favorite cafe shop. Afterwards, they took a long walk on the waterfront, where she confessed her feelings to him and he responded by kissing her. <laughs> and that's why you listen to your mama. <laughs> As you know, Galen's parents are my dear friends from university, Shauna and Jeff. They later told us that Galen has had a crush on Astra for as long as he realized he liked girls. Galen has always been a really good kid, and is growing into a nice young man, and we adore him. Since they both have graduated and will be attending Stromsheim Polytech, they have been enjoying their free summer together. 
Galen has been over at the estate nearly every day. The two of them are so cute as they walk around holding hands, talking on the lawn, and kiss deeply in front of the fire in the great room. (laughs) Bjorn and I are very affectionate with each other, so she clearly picked it up from somewhere. Budding romances at the estate has reminded us all of our own first loves. We heard about Sonnet and Oli's summer romance when he was still in law school. Erko's first marriage, which only lasted a year when he was 21. Bjorn claimed he didn't have much of a teenage past because he met Yana when he was only 19, and he was married by age 20. And then Bjorn's parents, Elena and Nikolai, told everyone about the time they caught 16-year-old Bjorn sneaking two girls from his room. (laughs) Life was simpler back then, wasn't it? It's why I want Astra to have this summer. I want her to go to clubs with her friends and spend time with her boyfriend and just be a teenager. She's about to embark on a new adventure at Stromsheim Polytech, and I'm excited for her. Next year, the twins will graduate from Calamar Prep, and I will get to do this all over again. My baby girls are growing up. Stay safe out there. And I'm looking forward to hearing about your new adventure, too. Love, CJ, age 65. You've been listening to an episode of Binary Saga. The part of CJ is played by Vanessa Shannon Anderson. The part of Jason has been played by Steve Petrocelli. Music by Eric Matias and SoundImage.org. Thank you to our Patreon members, Rob and Mary Carnahan, Samantha, and Dr. Layla. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting our Patreon page, which can be found in the Where to Find Us menu on our website. We have multiple levels of support, with a lot of fun special features like transcripts and photos. Or if you just want to donate to our Café, Bjor, or Sidrus funds, it's always appreciated. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook with at the Binary Saga. Want to ask us questions? You can join us on Discord for open chat. Find all of these links and more information at binarysaga.com. You can also read the print versions of the entire first and second season in Kindle or paperback on Amazon. These versions include a number of extra stories and background information. Just search for The Binary Saga.